welcome back to this week's winners on 88.3 FM, WXOE. Aronic, a cross Pierre Gasly wins the Italian Grand Prix! Oh my, oh my, is that just wonderful! The answer, yes! James Harden, a deep shot! That ball is gone! Over the bushes! A two-run shot, his first as a Tiger! The World Championship record is equaled. Lewis Hamilton wins the Turkish Grand Prix and is a seven-time champion of the world! Christopher Bell scores his first career win, and it comes on the day four court. Jokic a chance to tie it. Oh, Jokic hits it. <laughs> Looking for a second short-handed goal, and it's been a and shot score! What a goal! Through his own legs! Five seconds left in the game. You believe in miracles? Yes! I stayed in my state of my head. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to this week's winners on 88.3 FM WXOU. So glad you decided to join me to talk about sports today. A reminder to follow me on Twitter at TWW Sports to follow along with the action that I see on a daily basis. I was tweeting quite a lot yesterday because it was a very busy day of sports for me. And the uh, Started off the day with the U.S. Grand Prix and then uh, the NASCAR race. ton of football yesterday. Uh, I turned on the uh, Lions game right as Jared Goff threw a red zone pick when it was 1925, so that was awesome. Uh, and then uh, watched a lot of hockey last night, and the Red Wings uh, made up for Saturday night yesterday, but uh, that's... All that and more to come on today's episode of this week's winners. So again, 88.3 FM, WXOU, this week's winners. So glad you're with me today. So definitely a busy weekend of sports, like I said. Uh, There's some good, uh, some bad, uh, as I said, with the Red Wings on Saturday. Can't wait to talk about that. Uh, It's all going to be fun to talk about, though. So uh, We'll talk a little bit about the uh, Red Wings and the U.S. Grand Prix. Then we'll finish things up with the NFL. So, the Red Wings. So, what do I have to say about the Red Wings? Uh, it's definitely a mixed bag uh, this week. Uh, last week, I talked about how opening night was awesome, even though they lost, you know. I talked about the Vancouver game. And then uh, this past week... Uh, I went to the Columbus game, which was cool uh, to see them win for the first time this year, uh, at least while I was there. So other than that, though, we saw a tough loss against Calgary and an even tougher loss against Montreal in Montreal. So I think the Calgary game was really just a lack of hustle and, and bad bounces, you know. When you don't get the bounces going your way and you look as sluggish as they did, it's bound to end about the way that it did. And it was quite a boring game. Uh, Red Wings looked pretty sloppy on home ice. Calgary took it to them. 
and, and I tweeted at the time that, you know, it was really just, you know, a case of bad bounces against a very uninteresting opponent because, you know, Calgary's nothing special. And it showed in that game that it was kind of a slugfest that they got the upper hand of early. Uh, the Montreal game, though, got me mad. Like, and there's a lot to unload from the game. So first of all, no Tyler Bertuzzi because he's not allowed in the country of Canada. And uh, it really sets up a rewind back to last January where I had even said on here that they had a lack of talent. Bertuzzi was hurt. Uh, and I that's really when I hopped on the hate train for Jeff Blashell. I, I still think that he's a, you know, fine coach, but there are things that he does that if he did with other franchises, I, I don't think he'd still have the job. And we can talk all about this weekend, how he scratched Philip Aronik for some reason and puts in Troy Stetcher, but that's not the problem. Troy Stetcher is a great defenseman, but you scratched Aronik over DeKaiser. And it's, it was funny because it's like you have them as a defensive combo to Kaiser and Heronic. And you're like, man, that was horrible. Scratch Heronic as if he's the problem. Like, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, I I've said it before and I'll say it a million times. Danny DeKaiser is, he's not an NHL caliber defenseman. He he's just not, you know, and yesterday, last night against Chicago, they put him on the first line with, uh, more cider. And to be fair, I mean, defense looked decent last night, so I'm not going to harp on that too much. But uh, I'm mad that over the weekend, over two games, that Philip Peronik was scratched. I, I don't think he was a problem, and I, I don't think that he deserved to be a healthy scratch. A and then uh, Jeff Blasio went on to say in an interview that it remains a coach's decision because they have eight defensemen who can, you know, play on the team. But uh, I'm rather baffled that, that Heronic is the one that saw the short end of the stick on that. So again, back to last January, this team, you know, couldn't win. Bertuzzi was out. The top six did not have near as much talent as it does this year. And I was like, man, uh, I'm not a very big fan of Jeff Blashell because even without this talent, the things that they were doing wrong last year were all coachable things. You know, the power play was horrible. We all know the power play was, you know, one of the worst in the league. And that can kind of be summed up to talent, right? And this year they have the talent. They have a great number one power play, and their second one isn't bad either. But last year, the power play, that's something you could chalk up to, yeah, that's talent-based. However... A controlled breakout, neutral zone passing, zone entries, forechecking, backchecking, game management. Those are all coachable attributes, all of which the Red Wings were worst of in the entire league last year. They couldn't get the puck out of their zone. If they ever got it into the other team's zone, it was quickly out because they could pick you apart so easily. And... When I was watching this Montreal game on Saturday, I had horrible, horrible flashbacks to last year. It looked identical. 
they turned it over in their own zone and in the neutral zone so many times. They forfeited. In the first period alone, they probably forfeited like seven odd man rushes. It's just, it was unacceptable. And it's the first time they've been to Montreal in how many years, you know? Like, it's been so long since the pandemic started, right? The first time they're in Montreal. But that effort cannot go unnoticed. And I tweeted on Saturday that regardless of how things went in Chicago, for the effort that they put forward on Saturday, they deserved to have their legs skated off in the next practice. It's unacceptable. And my tone on it has slightly changed because, ironically, of how well things went in Chicago. But there's still so many things that you can pick apart. And especially in Montreal, the lack of discipline. And they're lazy penalties. Lazy, lazy penalties. You know, you have you have players reaching in and taking a high stick or a hook or a trip, right? These lazy penalties that you're just not moving your feet, holding. You know, I, I don't get those penalties. You know, one or two a game, maybe, because that's just part of the game, right? But in Montreal, just to be shorthanded and give up as many power play goals as they did was horrible. And... To be fair, in Chicago, it really wasn't much better. They still took a, you know, that gave me cold sweats because it reminded me of opening night against Tampa. They took penalties that opened the door for Chicago. And if they had Patrick Kane or any offense, they probably would have made Detroit regret that. But luckily, Chicago's not exactly a great team, and Marc-Andre Fleury did not play very good. So, like I said, Calgary can be chalked up to bad bounces not going their way. But Montreal, you know, everything from last year came back, you know. And this this is a Detroit team that if they're not playing 100%, they're not going to stand a chance. You know, it's like, it's like Herb Brooks said in the movie Miracle, you don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. And they don't. They will get outclassed if they do not outwork every team this year. And they're not going to. Larkin said earlier in the week that it's ridiculous to assume that your team can outwork every single team during the 82-game season, right? But the key to good teams, that's finding ways to win when you're not when you're not at your best, you know? And Detroit doesn't have that right now. They take lazy penalties to dig themselves even deeper. They they if they don't play the system that whatever Blash Hill is running right now as well as they can, especially in the neutral zone, they're picked apart and they give up odd man rushes like crazy. So I don't know. The the horrible zone exits were probably the biggest thing for me is that, you know, especially DeKaiser in, in his defensive zone. I mean, I don't even know if panic is the right word because he gives it away so fast. He doesn't even take a look. Reminds me of high school league 
play for defense. And it's, it's tough to watch. So I will say like in Chicago, they looked fine. I mean, there were still turnovers, a lot of turnovers, a lot of unforced errors, but, uh, Bertuzzi being back because they were back in the U.S. Uh, was big. And they really are, you know, the Wings have such a talented top six right now. And that is one of the biggest things. You know, and even in Chicago, uh, the bottom six wasn't hard to watch either. You know, you had Nemestikov involved. You had Carter Rowney tally his first, you know. Uh, Bertuzzi scored once, of course, you know, because he he makes a huge difference in the top six. But then all the talk coming out of yesterday was for newcomer, 19-year-old Lucas Raymond. And he becomes the first teenager since a guy by the name of Steve Iserman to score a hat trick as a teenager. It's pretty cool. Uh, He's also the rookie scoring leader. I don't know if anyone looked at that, but he is on fire. And he's easily leading Calder Trophy for Rookie of the Year voting right now. You know, he's fun to watch. And I remember when he went fourth overall to Detroit. And I was like, all right, not a bad pick, right? I I liked it. It turned out much better than that. But there were even people who were saying that he was picked way too high. That kid did not go too high, especially, you know, in hindsight now, he's got, you know, last year he had 18 points in 37 games with uh, Frölunda in Sweden. So, it, you know, I expected him to be good, but I didn't expect him to be make the opening night roster in your first year good and score a hat trick in your first five games good, you know. So uh, great to see from him. Uh, it's something that Detroit fans have needed for so long is a top six that is so good and so talented and and rivals any other team in the National Hockey League. And it does. Uh, You know, I'm not going to compare it to Edmonton and say, you know, the top six is just as good as Edmonton's because Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, you know, and Penguins too, once they're healthy, even though though they're not healthy right now. And and for a minute, I'll, I'll just say the Penguins beating the Leafs on Saturday night saved the Red Wings. I I just remembered that. The Penguins' top line was horrible on Saturday night. It rivaled an AHL team, a minor league hockey team, that they were icing. And I could not believe, I could not believe that the Penguins absolutely annihilated the Toronto Maple Leafs. And so no one's ever going to talk about this game with Detroit, if I wasn't, you know, I'm a Detroit fan, so I paid attention to it and I nitpicked it and wrote down hundreds of notes, right? But Toronto, if you're a casual hockey fan, took all the load from Saturday night. So I appreciate Toronto for taking that huge L and once again proving that I was very wrong to have faith in them at the beginning of the season. But, I, you know, it's funny because people are, are like, it's only five games in, it's only six games in, right? But for Toronto, I mean, they've been failures for what, like 10 years, 15 years? Every season goes the same way. So I'm not going to say it's game six for them. But I digress. So uh, Lucas Raymond, though, proves that Steve Eiserman is creating this team right. 
And it's, it is really a testament to Lucas Raymond that he made this opening night roster. And he's on that, on the top line too. You know, he's played with that top line. They have great chemistry together, but the fact that he's probably going to be with this team all year says a lot about how good he is because Eiserman is no stranger to taking time and letting the talent, you know, progress through the ranks. So Sider and Raymond are leading the rookies in scoring. And finally, the Red Wings and their fans have something to be excited about. The next couple of years are going to be great for this franchise. And they're going to add on to what is already a storied franchise. As Larkin said at the beginning of the season, they're going to write their own history. It's a team that I easily get excited about. And, and it's a team that makes me mad on Saturday night when they play as bad as they did. Because now I know they're better than that. They are so much better than what they put forward on Saturday in Montreal. I think they're better than what they showed in Chicago last night. I think there's a level to this team that has yet been reached. And I think it will be reached with better coaching staff. And uh, I know things are just turning the corner. And I don't want to throw Jeff Blashill under the bus already. Because I think that he has a chance to be good. But the problem is making these decisions that I do not understand like scratching Heronic instead of DeKaiser or Stahl. Those are the things that I don't quite understand for him. And, and against Tampa in opening night even, you can say that the system that he ran, sitting back and not forechecking, when they have a three-goal lead, which is widely considered the worst lead in hockey, they needed to keep their foot on the pedal. And... All season long, that's going to be what you need to watch from this team is if they take their foot off the pedal at any point, it's a team that can go cold. And we'll go back to last year where they depend on, on Jonathan Bernier to get wins. But Bernier's gone, and Andelkovich is used to playing behind a great defense. Thomas Grice is definitely not used to that because he's already been here for a year, but it's a great goaltending tandem that I don't want to see be overworked. So they can clean things up and they can head into Washington on Wednesday, uh, back home on Friday uh, against Florida, which will be a tough test as well. Uh, and then Saturday against Toronto in Toronto, so no Tyler Bertuzzi for that game, unfortunately. So uh, we'll be watching to see how they do. And uh, I'll be very, very critical on them as the weeks progress. So up next, I want to, I didn't want to go uh, this show without talking about the United States Grand Prix over the weekend. I'm not going to talk necessarily about the racing, but I want to talk about how welcomed Formula One was 
in the United States and why it is phenomenal, why I am so excited. So I didn't, I saw when I turned it on that there was a huge, like a massive crowd, you know, they reported like 150,000 fans in Austin, Texas for this race. And I'm sure that many more fans in the United States tuned into it because it was at 3 p.m. instead of, you know, 8 a.m. or, you know, 6 a.m. in the morning, as it is for a lot of people. But we were treated to an outstanding, outstanding race. Uh, between the two championship favorites, Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton. So... It's so important that this was a good race and that it was well received for U.S. audiences, you know, and I've talked about why I think the sport needs to grow in the United States, right? And, and the massive efforts that Formula One has put towards growing the sport in the United States. So, and part of that, you know, is credited, credited to the Netflix uh, docuseries Drive to Survive, which if you haven't watched, go watch it. It's very good. And with that, and with so many more people thinking that it's popular culture in the United States and more and more people getting back into it or getting into it for the first time, so many people flocked to Texas for this race. And I even considered going because I was like, why not? I mean, it seems so fun. And I was not expecting such a massive crowd. I mean, when Verstappen took the lead each time, you could just hear the crowd roar. And in a lot of places, you don't hear that. So it was impressive to that degree. And next year, they've added Miami to the schedule. And it's a, it's a street circuit, so it's going to have a lot of personality. You know, you know that it's probably going to feature, you know, some coastal racing like Monaco. And they're going to try and make it as big of a deal as they possibly can. And I don't think this is it. You know, obviously there's talks uh, of bringing Formula One to Las Vegas as well. I don't necessarily know if I want to see that after the disaster that was the last time, like 2006, when they raced in Vegas in, in like a parking lot. That was pretty bad. So hopefully they do better than that. But... At the same time, I can easily see three or four races easily in the United States in the coming years with how much it's grown and how popular it was at Austin. And it really depends on what the TV ratings were in the United States for it, for what, what ESPN got for the ratings, because that will show just how many people coast to coast are interested and would be interested in going to a race. You know, obviously there's going to be a lot of casual fans that aren't going to travel the country to go watch a race. But because Formula One has these huge events and they differ so much from NASCAR in the regard that the entire weekend's a party. Like they, they qualify or they practice on Thursday, Friday, qualify on Saturday, right? And they race on Sunday and there's huge events, you know, sponsor events throughout the weekend. And obviously with COVID, a lot of that has gone away, but it's just starting to come back. 
So in the coming years, when they're having these massive weekend parties, it's going to be a hot spot wherever they race, whether it's Miami, whether it's California, Vegas, or Austin. And obviously, they're going to stay at Circuit of the Americas in Austin. So, you know, F1, you know, commented themselves, though, that the one thing that would skyrocket the ratings in the United States is having a U.S. driver on the grid. And I am all for that. I mean, obviously, as an American, I I would root for an American on the grid. I'd still have my fan favorites like Lando Norris and Max Verstappen, right? But it'd be nice to see an American on the Formula One grid because Formula One is by far the most celebrated racing series in the world. You know, not quite in the United States yet, but like I talked about a couple weeks ago, they still pull in 100 million viewers per race. So they have a Super Bowl every two weeks, pretty much. Just because it's not popular in the United States, you know. And I think they want to change that. I think they still have the ambition to grow. And it's not like they want to grow and push American autosport out of business. They're not coming after IndyCar. They're not coming after NASCAR. They just see it as untapped potential because it is. You know, you, there's probably only a couple hundred thousand people who tune into Formula One on a biweekly basis in the United States. So they see this as a huge opportunity. They've had talks with Andretti Autosport, which is a popular IndyCar series here in the States. And American driver Colton Herta has been linked to that. And Herta is very popular. I think it would stink to lose him from IndyCar, but it would be nice to see a very good American driver in Formula One. I don't think it's going to happen, though, because I have heard recently that those talks have gone cold. But it brings me back to one big point, that if we need another team in Formula One, and a true American team. Yeah, there's Haas, you know, but uh, they're based over in Britain. And I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it has an American owner, but we need another team. And I was really hoping Andretti Autosport would not buy a team, but create one. And because Formula One is so expensive to get in and so expensive to start, I don't think that's ever going to happen unless formula one, you know, bridges the gap and helps a new team enter the sport. We're not going to see a new team and I'm pretty doubtful on whether or not we're going to see an American driver in the next even five years, though it would be terrific. And I think, you know, American audiences would respond very well to that. I think what they need to focus on now is the Netflix docuseries to get people watching it and hyped up for it and focus on having really good races at Miami and Austin and getting people talking about it, you know, advertising too. You know, I've never seen an advertisement for formula one, maybe once or twice on ESPN. But other than that, I don't think obviously cause it's on ESPN, but I've never seen it anywhere post print media, anything. So They need to work on that as well, but Formula One returns to action on the 7th for the Mexican Grand Prix, 
So that'll be a good one to watch as well. Shouldn't be too early in the morning for us Americans. So don't forget to tune into that. Watch it. Like I said, Formula One is a mainstay on this show because I really want to grow that sport. I want to help grow that. It's such a fun sport to watch. I love all auto racing, but Formula One is just such an event, so fun to watch, you know, because they build their own cars, you know. They're so, they're so fast. They build their own cars. They, there's only 20 of them, so it's smaller races, but shorter races too, which I think is key if you think NASCAR is too boring. But I'm a big fan. Big fan of Formula One, and you should be too. Anyway, now I'd say that it is about time to move on to the NFL. And for the NFL, uh, once again, William, how you doing? Doing good. That's good. That's good. It's, uh, like I said, I had a crazy, crazy weekend of sports. I, I watched e- pretty much every, you know, sport under the sun. Uh, very tired. Very, very tired. But I will say that the NFL this weekend did not disappoint because there were multiple times where I looked at scores and I was like, What's happening like in that game, right? And obviously we'll get to the main name ones that are are like, hey, what in God's name happened, right? So first of all, though, uh, let's talk about Detroit and the LA Rams. So a lot of times after losses, I'm kind of upset like this year, right? And last week was an exception. They got blown out. I expected them to. But there's games like Baltimore and and Minnesota that are sticking in my mind forever. And this could have been a game like that, but instead I, I'm just content. You know, they competed. They didn't get the wagon wheels blown off. They just competed like a a football team would. And I have a couple of notes here on, on what I thought about the game. So first of all, I'm very impressed with Dan Campbell's aggressive play calling. You know, two fake punts. It's crazy. I I would not have anticipated that. An onside kick early as well. I mean, it's a team that was kind of saying, hey, you want to know what? We're, Yeah, we're the Lions, but we're coming after you, and we don't really care. We're going to do stuff that you wouldn't expect. And I'm finally, I'm finally ready to cave. If you remember on week one, Week one, I said, I don't think that Jared Goff is going to be the problem this team has. I have completely 360 on that. And I think he is the problem that Detroit has now. Because if he, if we have a quarterback that plays a little bit better in, in three or four of our games, then we're not 0-7. You know, it, it's... And this game's no different. It's like I said at the top of the show. I looked at the score and I was like, it's 19 to 25. You know, they made it close. They led for most of the first half. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to turn this game on. And I kid you not, I sat down on my couch, turned on my TV, turned on the game. Two plays later, Jared Goff throws a pick in the red zone. And I I do not care if he was hit while throwing. I, I, no. That was horrible in the red zone. Throw it away or don't throw it. Keep it. Like, I I don't know 
he was throwing to an area that was covered. Completely covered. He throws it. Gets picked off. Jalen Ramsey. Game's over. Regardless of a base score, game's over. And I turned it off. <laughs> so I watched the game for, for two plays, and I was like, yep, nope, I'm done. However, I will take from this game that I'm fine with it. You know, they, they played them close. They lost off of turnovers again, which is kind of the narrative. And I'm fine. Khalif Raymond played good. Swift played good. And the, the whole offense played good besides Jared Goff. And that's what I come back to. Uh, L.A. obviously played down to their level, I'll say. Matt Stafford didn't have the best game, but comes out with a win, which is what winning teams do is find a way to win regardless of the circumstance. So I don't know what you thought about this game, but ultimately I'm, I'm not mad. I just, you know, I didn't expect them to win. They didn't win. They made it competitive and decent to watch if you were, you know, watching it the entire way through. They just end up choking in the last two minutes. But I don't know, what, what did you think? Uh, I thought the game at first, I thought the Lions was going to actually do it. And then, <laughs> you know, what you said with the turnovers, when you throw it to the end zone where there's nothing there to throw it to, to uh, Jalen Ramsey in the end zone. And also another pick. Uh, that was tipped up by the offense by the offensive player into the defensive hands. Well, actually died for it for that pick. But I cut. Well, it's kind of a usual thing for the Lions. Like you thought they're going to win them, but then they give up the lead and then lose the those onside kick and those fake punts. I was actually surprised for him. But hey, he's thinking Dan Campbell is thinking outside the box, so I'll give him that. And the only bright spot was, yeah, what you say, Raymond and DeAndre Swift had a great game, and Jamal Williams had a underrated game too. So I ju- I'm just thinking that maybe in my mind they should not win it because they're going to pull a, I believe, a Giants and actually win a game, and then they're going to take – then they're not going to have the first-round pick anymore, and they could probably get that guy from Oregon. But I, but I thought the game – I thought the game was the usual Lions game, and the Rams, they showed their, they can get beat. They got beat them before, but they showed they're not really a great team, but they can hang in there when it matters most. Yeah, they they struggled with the run game especially. And other games this season, they've been able to recover it a little bit without Akers, right? But this game was horrible. And against a a Lions defense that most people thought at the beginning of the season you'd be able to run against very well. They were not able to, despite injuries, I know, but they weren't able to do anything against the Lions defense, except when they aired it out. Of course, Stafford uh, in the air is you know, not going to waver to any defense, let alone the Lions defense. So sloppy game from the Rams. They win. Detroit loses, and I'm not mad. Uh, I'm not going to freak out at them. I'm just... I shrug it off and I'm like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe we'll go on and we'll get the number one pick. I think at this point, if we win a game, we'll still be last in the league because uh, I think there's a lot of teams that I think there's only like two other teams that are have only one win right now, and very unpredictable. And you said the Giants too, and I was expecting them to have a pretty bad year too. It uh, looks like they won this week, which uh, I did not see coming. 
And I don't have a lot of notes here because the game, from what I heard, was horrible. Carolina and New York Giants. And Carolina dropped it 25-3. to And Sam Darnold, 16 for 25, only 111 yards. He got benched. He got benched? Yeah. And then P.J. Walker, a guy in the game. P.J. Walker. It's a guy from from another league, from the arena football. From arena football? Yeah. Did you do better? Yeah, he, he has some great highlights, but I don't know how they're going to translate to the NFL, though. Oh, man. Well, T.J. Moore, six catches, 73 yards. Uh, they had one field goal in the first quarter and nothing the rest of the game. And it's hard to talk about games like these because – the Giants are horrible too. So they, they, yeah, they scored twenty five points. But I mean, it was it was so hard to watch them score those twenty five points because both teams were horrible. You know, at least for the Lions game, I'll say like it's fun to watch yeah. because you know you're like, oh, they can do it. Close. Yeah, yeah. This was horrible. I mean, horrible, horrible. Daniel Jones twenty three for thirty three, two hundred three yards and a touchdown. That's not very great either. Darius Slayton and Evan Ingram uh, combined for 107 yards. That's pretty much it. That's all the offense that this game saw. Yeah. Uh, I think they're missing Saquon and Galladay really badly. Yeah. Yeah, they are. And that's just – I don't know. The Giants, to me, like, I think it's the first time all year we've actually talked about the Giants because I usually look at that game and go, yeah, nope, not talking about that because – Usually it's just a, a walk, but I wanted to mention it this week because Carolina, what are you doing? Like that that's this was not even thought of before the season started that this team was gonna be so abysmal. I, I thought they were gonna be average to you know slightly poor. I didn't think they were gonna be abysmal. And and to me, they're abysmal right now. So I don't know. And, and a team that is very much not abysmal right now is the Cincinnati Bengals. And so I feel a little bit better about the Lions' loss, first of all, uh, because this is a team that has come out, and and Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, first of all, they they look so good together, and they're a tandem that is inseparable. And I I don't want to knock on wood or anything, but if one of them goes down, this team collapses, completely collapses, not even close to competitive. But I will say that Baltimore got crushed by this Bengals team, who now, by the way, lead the AFC North, which I wouldn't have predicted. And Lamar Jackson had a horrible game. I don't know. I saw another quarterback got some reps in too, so I'm not sure if he got benched or injured or what, but – 15 for 31, 257 yards, one touchdown. Not bad. He rushed for 88 yards. So still a little bit away from what I'm expecting from the Lamar Jackson. But this is a Cincinnati team that took to them and beat them down. Like, they did not stop. They put their foot on the gas. They did not let up. Joe Burrow threw for 416 yards, three touchdowns. Jamar Chase, 201 yards one touchdown. By the way, that's the most yards from a Cincinnati rookie, I think, ever. So... Yeah, I don't think Chad Ochocinco ever went that low. Yeah. AJ Green either. Unbelievable. So, did you watch this game? 
Uh, yeah, but then it's, when the score starts running it up, I stopped. But yeah, Jamar Chase going to be offensive rookie year, no doubt. Yeah, I, I mean, you can't even at this point you can't doubt it. Yeah. You know, unless he gets injured. Yeah. I, like I said, I mean, I don't want to knock on wood again, but that's just the way this league sometimes goes. Is when it has something great, it gets ripped from us. So I, I will say that it was a very entertaining game to watch because. I kind of turned it on expecting the Bengals, you know, to be the other way around. I expected Baltimore to be like flex the muscle and be like, we're the top dogs of the AFC North. But instead, I think they proved that they have equal amount of ineptitude as the Steelers. And it's going to come down to which of those two teams can, you know, get their heads screwed on tightly because the Steelers are kind of turning the corner and looking a little better, right? And then Baltimore, after this week, I think everyone's saying, oh, wow, so they're not that good either. So and I, I will say that Cincinnati's much better than I expected, but they're not that good. And, oh, the, the pass defense for Baltimore was abysmal. I'm not going to take anything away from Chase's 201 yards, but I mean, ah, uh, you cannot, like, he's going to throw to him every time. Like, yeah. like 80% of his throws will probably go to Jamar Chase. And knowing that, you let him run or catch 201 yards. Yeah, and uh, Marlon Humphreys got dusted by their tight end twice. <laughs> yes. He got stiffed on, too. Oh, my. Yeah, that's underrated, too, is the fact that C.J. Uzma had 91 yards and two touchdowns. And T. Higgins at 62 yards. This is every single one of the receiving core had a role in this game. But the fact that Jamar Chase, in total, they had a re- just a ridiculous amount of receiving yards. And it was spread out besides Jamar Chase. The other 200 yards of it were spread out pretty equally. So if you're Baltimore, you just put on full display that you do not have pass defense. And I think they're in serious danger of losing any grip that they have in the AFC North. So I don't know what they need to do to get things back. Lamar Jackson, in the past three at least weeks, has not looked like himself. And I'm worried for them. But I will say I am not nearly as worried for them as I am for Kansas City. And I said a couple weeks ago that it's not worry time. Did you say it's worry time yet? Uh, yeah, it's close. Looks like everyone else from the Raiders look great today. The Chargers have a vibe, but they still are a good team. And the Broncos are always a threat. But the Chiefs right now, it's pretty... One or done, they probably might miss the playoffs. Who knows? They look horrible. Horrible. I I cannot think of an excuse in the book to why Mahomes looks as pedestrian as he does. It is it is the worst that I've seen them play since the Mahomes era. You know, I cannot believe it. it it's, it's time to work. Like, I, I am fully on board that it's time to work. Mahomes, 20 for 35, 206 yards. Pringle, Kelsey, Hill, uh, they each found the ball less than eight times in this game. 
and, and Pringle had 73 yards. That was the best of it. And this is an offense that cannot go scoreless. This is one of the highest paid offenses in the league. They have so many weapons. And they did not score a touchdown in this game. And you cannot do that. Not when you're Kansas City. Not when you're a Mahomes-led offense. You can't go scoreless. And, and Tennessee has proven that, hey, they have a defense that's formidable, yeah. right? And they took it to this Chiefs team. They were not ready in any way for this Tennessee Titans team. And credit where credit is due, Ryan Tannehill led this team so well in this game. Threw for 270 yards, had amazing accuracy. 21 for 27, only having six dropped uh, passes. One touchdown. I think he had a rushing touchdown, too. So Derrick Henry, 30 carries again. Like, the guy's a monster. He didn't run for that. He ran for 86 yards, so they did a pretty good job stopping him considering that it was 30 rushes. But A.J. Brown, eight receptions on 133 yards uh, and a touchdown. Pruitt had a touchdown, I believe, two. Uh, yeah, they uh, they collapsed. And there there's no excuse in the book that I can think of for this team getting run out of the building like that. Have you ever seen this from this Kansas City team? Well, I did see it in the Super Bowl one time. Because it happened in yes. the Super Bowl. Yeah. That's what we always draw back to, like Mahomes. Because same thing like Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow, he stepped back one time to throw. I just Then with Mahomes, you see him, he stepped back. Then he tried to wait. Then he's still waiting for the pocket, waiting for someone to get open. And then he tries to throw it. Or he runs it that one time and then fumbles the ball. So, I don't know. I just think that the Chiefs, that loss – is one of the long lines of losses that they got to look back on. And I'm just thinking that the defense, again, they got to they gotta step up. They stop Henry sometimes, but then can stop most of the passing game. So, honestly, this loss is really nothing new, but surprised that Mahomes didn't throw a touchdown, at least because some of the losses – he had a thrown the touchdown except that Super Bowl loss. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And I, I like what you mentioned there, and I have it in my notes, is that Mahomes, through his entire career, college included, he has always struggled with damage control. And, and that being, there's other quarterbacks in the league that when they know the pocket is collapsing and when they know they have pass rush coming and they can't get a pass off, they throw it out of bounds or they take the sack. And it's not often that you see him do it. He throws it out of bounds sometimes, right? But he doesn't read the situation well enough in the pocket that when it collapses, he tries to make something out of nothing. And it can it sometimes it leads to a timely interception. And you see that out of all quarterbacks, right? But with Mahomes especially because he's so aggressive. And then sometimes you see him take a sack and fumble it or see him take a huge loss of yards because he's trying to make something out of the play instead of just throwing it out of bounds or getting rid of it. You know, he plays like this, where he takes a step back, you know, and he's trying to read it. In the first, you know, three to five seconds, if you don't see anyone, you got to get rid of it. And he just does not do that. And 
that is always a critique that I've had on Mahomes is the damage control. And there's other quarterbacks that, you know, Joe Burrow, for example, that they can sometimes do that better. And I didn't see that out of him. And I'm, I'm disappointed that this offense was held without a score for the entire game because it's not an offense that you would expect that to happen to. And, <coughs> excuse me, and Tennessee, full credit to them, they had a shaky start to the year, you know, and they just glassed what was widely considered, you know, a Super Bowl favorite. And now I wouldn't consider them. That. I, I, like you said, I'm worried for Kansas City to even make the playoffs at this point, which, you know, is not even something we should be considering this early into the Mahomes era. And unfortunately, it's the, the way things are going for them right now. And uh, the start of a new era in Chicago, Justin Fields. And how's that era going so far? It, it was horrible. I I saw he was telling what, what he was doing. Through a, through a touchdown, keep forcing Actually, didn't throw a touchdown. He forcing the ball downfield. I don't know Matt Nagy sabotaging him left and right. I know he's gonna his job is on the line. I don't know if he's still gonna get out from this, but but man, honestly, when coming to this, I knew they were not gonna win, but I didn't see this outcome like this. But honestly, besides you know Tom Brady throwing six hundred uh, career touchdowns. Besides that, it was more so Buccaneers being old Buccaneers, doing what they have to do to win and shutting down the Bears' offense and destroying their defense. Yeah, it was uh, hard to watch. I mean, it it barely even looked like the Bucks broke a sweat. Like, it didn't look like they were even trying. You know, all they had to do was sit back, wait for Fields to throw an interception or fumble the ball. He had What did he have? He had three fumbles and two of them were lost. And he threw three interceptions. He turned over the ball five times. He he had another historically bad day out of a rookie quarterback. And if you're Tampa Bay, I mean, you didn't even have to play Tom Brady. I don't know who their backup is this year. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. Is Blaine Gabbard. Right, right, Gabbard. So they could play him, giving him some reps. And they still, they still would have won by multiple touchdowns. I have no doubt in my mind, you know. Uh, I will. One last thing I will say is that Fields was sacked four times. He's no stranger to being sacked. Uh, Jason Pierre-Paul, uh, two sacks for him. Another great day for the Tampa Bay defense. But like I said, it didn't even look like they were trying. It looked like a, a pickup football game yeah. where you know all the popular kids who are good at football team up on all the kids who, who aren't don't play football. Yeah, it was a field day for Brady. Yeah, it, it was. Dimes after dimes. It was hard to watch. And another hard-to-watch game that I had here, uh, New England and the New York Jets. So, New England just destroyed them. And Mike White, who I'm not sure why they had him in, at quarterback, Probably but injured or they just subbed him out. But I think I heard he got injured on one play when he trying to down the field to the red zone. I, I was very surprised not to see uh, Zach Wilson and White through twenty for thirty two, two hundred and two yards, one touchdown, two interceptions. Not bad, but they, they never scored. They didn't have a run game. They, they 
Michael Carter had a fumble and 67 yards. Not very good. Ty Johnson, 65 yards. Corey Davis had a touchdown, but that's pretty much it. Other than that, it was straight painful for the New York Jets. And Mac Jones looked like an all-pro. He, he just threw like crazy against 24 for 36, 307 yards, two touchdowns. One of the best games of his young career so far. Uh, but I'm not going to say that with a lot of confidence because this New York Jets team looked horrible. You know, for as much as I am disgruntled with the Lions, right, uh, that was horrible. Like, that was worse than any game that I've watched the Lions play this year by far. And, and yeah, I'm not going to put too much stress on it because Zach Wilson is either hurt or benched or whatever. But, wow, it was bad. Damian Harris had himself a game, 14 carries, 106 yards. J.J. Taylor had two touchdowns. Brandon Bolden. 79 yards and a touchdown. Kendrick Bourne, 68 yards. You know, list goes on and on. Aguilar had a touchdown. Hunter Henry had a touchdown. Everyone had a touchdown at this point. You know, and a very tough game for Jets fans to swallow. When I think a lot of people were cautiously optimistic that they wouldn't be a laughingstock of the league, they've played pretty bad this year. And I, even with Wilson in this game, I, I don't think they beat the Patriots. You know, I, I think that slowly but surely for the Patriots, I think that the uh, Belichick and Mac Jones era is starting to mesh a little better. I think that they're starting to get to know each other a little better. They're starting to learn a playbook and add to a playbook that's becoming a little bit more creative. And I think Mac Jones, he's no Tom Brady. He will never even be close to Tom Brady, I don't think. And I think he'll be decent. I think he will grow into a quarterback that, you know, rivals like a, like a Joe Burrow, you know, like pretty good, solid, and will be your number one quarterback for, for years to come. But I don't see him as, well, what Mahomes is supposed to be, uh, a Brady, uh, even a Stafford. I don't, I don't quite see that. But for the Patriots – it is a major stroke of confidence that they're turning this corner. And I don't think – this year they're not going to have the best record. But next year through the draft and, – and this is a team that has said they want to build through the draft. And this next coming draft, they're going to get a couple more players. And they're going to be bringing up these homegrown talents now. So this is a Patriots team that I kind of brought myself to the question of is when is their next window? You know, with Tom Brady leaving a couple of years ago, they've had some of the darkest years they've had in my lifetime. But for you, when do you think this window opens back up for them? Is it five years? Is it 10? Closer to 15 even? Uh, well, I know they're probably never going to win a division because Josh Allen is too inhuman. So I just think that it's probably going to take a long time uh, there, Matt Jones, I'm thinking he's going to turn to probably top 10 quarterback from years to come. Right? Same thing like Joe Burrow on that level. And I think that he needs to know more pieces around him because Bourne, Aguilar, I think those receivers, I think they could get a step upgrade if they can probably, because the trade deadline is a 
until November 2nd. So they could probably trade for Odell or Michael Thomas or somebody like that, a number one receiver for Matt Jones to feed off of. But I think there's going to be still time because Belichick is Belichick, and he has the greatness of that, of building off of talent of people, of wanted talent or people through their own Patriot system. Because the Patriots waves creating all those Super Bowls ain't no joke because with Tom Brady, all those pieces they got in the past, I think they could do the same steps and procedure moving forward with uh, Belichick on the center until he's there. Still there. We'll see what they are able to do in the future. I have confidence that this is a team that, you know, they will have to go through the Bills, you know, every year. And that's going to be very tough for them uh, when – Josh Allen sticks around because the Bills are a team that have very much turned it on in the past and no doubt in my mind, I think, is a team that is going to be sticking around at the top of the division for years to come, probably five at least, maybe even up to eight, ten. So they're a team that's going to be around and in their way for a very long time. Another game, though, tonight, Seattle and New Orleans. Uh, One last thing before we go, your prediction on that. Uh, I was going to say Seattle, but I'm going to be realistic, and I'm <laughs> going to say Saints because they don't have that much of major injuries except Michael Thomas, but they show they can play through Alvin Kamara. Yes, absolutely. And I, I actually am going to say Seattle. So I, I looked into it, and it's long shot odds, and I'm not a big sports better, but uh, maybe that starts tonight. Because I, I have this feeling in my bones. I feel I feel that Seattle is going to come out with a victory tonight. And we'll see. We'll see how wrong I am. And if you want to see my reaction, you can follow me on Twitter, at TWW Sports. But really, I think Seattle takes the win tonight. But for us this week, everyone, it's going to be it. So if you enjoyed, tune in next week. If you missed any of today's episode live, a reminder that all episodes can now be found on Spotify. Just search this week's winners. Uh, Thank you, everyone, and let's do this again next week. You've been listening to this week's winners on 88.3 FM WXOU.